Hey, can you guys do me a favor and let our worship team know how much we appreciate them this morning? Come on, let them know. That was awesome. Man, they're up here early every single Sunday morning, most of them volunteering, serving, and uh, they lead us to the throne every week, and they do a remarkable job, and we are blessed. And if you ever see any of them out in the lobby before or after service, let them know that, um, how much you appreciate them. Hey, if we haven't met, my name's Adam, one of the pastors here. Glad you're here. It's great to see so many of you here on our campus. Let me welcome everyone joining us online. We are wrapping up our Broken Crown teaching series today, and it's Palm Sunday. I love Palm Sunday. It just kind of brings back a lot of special memories over the years of the church I grew up in and some of the things that we would do there and, and, and serving in different churches. And we're going to talk about Palm Sunday today. We're going to tie it into the whole broken crown and how we're wrapping that up. But just for a minute, I think it's, I think it's fun to just think about this for a second. So we are part of the church. Y'all know that, right? So there's this global church, God's people everywhere. We have our little post here at Vaughn Forest Church in the River Region, but we're part of the church. And when you stop and think about that, different churches and different countries, different languages, different denominations, and, and each particular church it's kind of doing its own thing. Now, not like in the sense that they're being anti-biblical, but maybe they're going through this particular book of the Bible or they're focusing on this with their discipleship. And then there's Palm Sunday. And you get this Sunday every year where for the most part, I bet across the globe, the entire church is focusing on one thing. I just think that's kind of cool. I think that's kind of fun to lean into that a little bit. So we're gonna do that today. And I'm really excited about that. But Obviously, since today is Palm Sunday, that means next Sunday is Easter, biggest celebration of the year. So you've probably already heard, but just make sure we're all on the same page. Next Sunday, 9.30 and 11 o'clock. Now, if you're new to Vaughn Forest, you're like, well, when else would we do Easter services? We get crazy sometimes, and we add services all over the place uh, on Easter. This year, 9.30 and 11, okay? Regularly scheduled program, like they used to say back in the day on TV, all right? So student ministry will happen at 9.30. Kids ministry, 9.30 and 11. Your life group will meet if it usually meets and it's going to be an awesome day. Now, we will have some photo booths set up in the lobby, okay? So if you want to get a family photo, if your mom tells you to dress up and tuck in your shirt, kids, teenagers, do it, all right? Lord knows we're going to have to fight that battle at my home. It'll be a hoodie-free Sunday, okay? So we're going to say no hoodies, although if you wear a hoodie on Sunday, we're pro-hoodie. Nothing wrong with wearing a hoodie on Sunday, okay? But I will tell you, Jacob Bishop will not be wearing a hoodie next Sunday because we're going to get a good picture for mom. That's neither here nor there, okay? So you can get a family picture, and that'll be kind of fun, and it's going to be a great celebration. But let me ask you this. If you call Vaughn Forest home, I want you to park as far away from this campus as your legs will carry you, okay? There's going to be a lot of guests that are going to be here, and let's give them the best parking. It kind of takes a minute. If you've never been here on our campus and you remember your first Sunday, big campus, kind of figuring out where everything is, we'll have a lot of greeters. We'll have a lot of people helping out with the first-time family check-in, getting them to where they need to be, helping their kids get where they need to be. So if you call Vaughn Forest Home, just again, if you could park as far away from the building as possible, um, that would be great, and it's going to be an awesome celebration next Sunday. Before today, we are wrapping up Broken Crown. Let me tell you the title of today's message and how we're going to tie this in to Palm Sunday. We're actually going to talk about King Jesus on Palm Sunday. And if you have a Bible, we'll be in John chapter 12. If you don't have a Bible, we'll put all the verses up here for you. So the point of this series, and it's been a quick series just for a few weeks, we've been talking about some Old Testament kings, mainly the mistakes they made and how we can actually learn lessons from their mistakes and apply them today. But ultimately, the role of the king in the Old Testament was to get us to Jesus, 
from the line of King David, we get to King Jesus, the one true king, the king of all kings. And in my opinion, so what I mean when I say my opinion, you may not necessarily see it this way, and that's okay. Like This is not an issue of the authority of God's word. But in my opinion, as I study the four gospels and as I study the three years of Jesus's public ministry, Palm Sunday is the one time where Jesus clearly presents himself as a king. Now, he is the king, but if you look at his three years of public ministry, he's not exactly leading that way. Philippians 2 gives us some insight into why, but then there's Palm Sunday. There's this one isolated event where Jesus shows up as the king, and I just think it's a remarkable part of God's word that we're probably familiar with. I mean, even people who don't necessarily call themselves believers or go to church have probably heard of Palm Sunday, probably heard of Easter. And sometimes the familiarity with the story can rob us from the power of the story. So there's some message notes inside your bulletin. Let me ask you to go ahead and get those out. If you're joining us online, you can access them right here at vaughnforest.com. And uh, what we're going to do today is we are going to eventually, and I stress the word eventually, get to three applications, three takeaways from this story, but I'm going to do a whole lot before we get to that. So I'm telling you so that about halfway through when you're like, he hasn't even gotten to point number one, there's hope, okay? I know, all right? We're, those are going to kind of be at the end, and what we're going to do is we're going to spend a lot of time getting to that point, and I'm going to give you a lot of stuff that you might want to jot down somewhere else, and then eventually we'll get to those three applications. And so let me tell you why we're going to approach it that way, and you might even want to jot this down somewhere. The context for Palm Sunday is actually provided for us in John chapter 11. So I said John chapter 12, we'll eventually get there, but I wanna spend some time unpacking John chapter 11 because it sets the stage for Palm Sunday. You know what context is. I don't know if you watched the basketball games last night. So the first game of the final four, the dude hit the shot right as the buzzard sound to win the game. I mean, it was awesome. We were watching it, and we don't have a rooting interest in the game, but as soon as that shot went in, me and the boys all yelled at the same time And because you just don't see that very often where he made the shot right as the buzzer went off, wins the game. That's awesome. That's the headline. Buzzer-beating shot, wins game. Here's context. They were losing by 14 points in the second half. Like, oh, that even makes it more impressive. They came back from 14 points and hit the buzzer-beating shot. That's context. So we've got the headline, Palm Sunday, but let's look at what happens in John chapter 11. Let's get a little bit of context, and as we see the context, I think all of a sudden we might see Palm Sunday in a new light. Okay, so again, I didn't put these things in your notes, but you might want to jot them down somewhere. So what happens in John chapter 11 is a tipping point. And this tipping point is the tipping point of raising Lazarus from the dead. So let's unpack both of those things. Lazarus is the brother of Mary and Martha, and Jesus shows up and raises him from the dead. This is a tipping point. Now, the term tipping point was penned by Malcolm Gladwell a number of years ago in a book, and it kind of caught on culturally. And it basically carries, it with this, carries with it this idea that in a number of areas of our life, momentum can build to a certain point, and then it kind of tips in our favor, and things kind of start to take on a life of their own. You can see that in relationships. We dated, we got engaged, we got married. Where was the tipping point in your relationship where you knew that he was the one, or you knew she was the one? You can see this in business and in a number of different areas. And in John chapter 11, when Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead, 
there's a tipping point where three things happen simultaneously. And if we understand the power of these three things happening simultaneously, it's going to begin to give us greater insight into Palm Sunday. So here's the first tipping point of raising Lazarus from the dead. It results in more people following Jesus. Here's the key more quickly. So in the three years of Jesus' public ministry, he picks up followers along the way. There are certainly people who see him as the Messiah, but nothing added to that number more quickly than when he raised Lazarus from the dead. There's a number of skeptics. There's a number of people who are still checking it out. But when they see Jesus do this, they're in. From that point forward, they consider themselves to be followers. So let's go to John chapter 11 and see where John tells us this in verse 45. Therefore, the therefore is after Jesus having raised Lazarus from the dead. Many of the Jews who had come to visit Mary and had seen what Jesus did believed in him. First tipping point, a lot of new believers in a very short amount of time. Here's the second tipping point that happens from raising Lazarus from the dead. It results in the Pharisees resolving to kill him. So up until this point, the Pharisees were annoyed by Jesus, bothered by Jesus. Every now and then they try to pick a fight with Jesus. But when Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead, that was it. They reached their tipping point, And from that point forward, they would not rest until Jesus was dead. Again, back to John chapter 11, he tells us this, verse 46. Some of them, the people who saw this happen, went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. Then the chief priests and the Pharisees called a meeting of the Sanhedrin. What are we accomplishing, they asked. Here is this man performing many signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him. And then the Romans will come. They'll take away both our temple and our nation. And they conclude in verse 53 with John giving us insight, saying, from that day on, they plotted to take his life. Do you see what's happening here? Simultaneously, large number of people believing in Jesus. Simultaneously, Pharisees saying he has to die. And then here's the third thing that happens, the tipping point of raising Lazarus from the dead. This all results in Jesus and the disciples retreating to the wilderness. In the midst of more followers, in the midst of the Pharisees, concluding we're going to kill him, Jesus and the disciples decide we probably need to lay low for a little while. So let's go back to John chapter 11 and we'll see where John tells us this in verse 54. Therefore, Jesus no longer moved about publicly among the people of Judea. Instead, he withdrew to a region near the wilderness to a village called Ephraim, where he stayed with his disciples. All of these things happened simultaneously as a result of Jesus raising Lazarus from the dead. But see, there's something else. It's not just what he did, it's when he actually did it. So the timing of all of this is substantial as well. Jesus raising Lazarus from the dead, and he happens, and I'm saying that, understanding that there is no happenstance in God's word, that God's sovereign hand is driving all of this, that when Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead, it's also during the Passover. Now, if you're new to the Bible, the Passover was an annual celebration where the Hebrew people commemorated God rescuing them when they had been enslaved in Egypt. And it was a big celebration, not like just a day. Think more like a week, not like Mardi Gras. Some of y'all just sinned, not like Mardi Gras, okay? But like a big, long, week-long celebration. So let's kind of talk about this for a second because what happens is you have this convergence of the tipping point of Jesus raising Lazarus from the dead with Passover, 
So it's not just what happens, it's when it happens. And now all of these things are gonna start to come together and again, do what? Give us a greater insight and greater context into the power of Palm Sunday. So let me make a few observations about this convergence with the time that this happened. Here's the first observation to make. People from the countryside are descending upon Jerusalem. Now the irony of this is that Jesus and his disciples are going to the countryside. They're actually moving out towards the wilderness, but what's happening? All the people in the country that live in the middle of nowhere, they're descending upon the city because this is what you do annually to celebrate the Passover. And John tells us this. Back to John chapter 11, verse 55. When it was almost time for the Jewish Passover, many went up from the country to Jerusalem for their ceremonial cleansing before the Passover. They kept looking for Jesus. So they haven't seen Jesus. Again, they kind of live out in the middle of nowhere. And, and this is the one time of the year they're going to actually come to the city. And so it would make sense. They're looking for Jesus. They stood in the temple courts and they began to ask one another, what do you think? Isn't he coming to the festival at all? So you've got people from the countryside who are descending upon Jerusalem. Here's the second thing that happens as a convergence of these two things occurring. The Pharisees start a hashtag, have you seen Jesus campaign? Now, I don't know if they actually used a hashtag back then. In fact, let me tell you, they did not. Okay, I'm just adding that so we understand when things go viral today and everybody's, you know, looking into the same thing or social media or something kind of catches on, the Pharisees recognize what's happening and they basically start a campaign, have you seen Jesus? Now, here's what's interesting about that. There are more people in the city than usual. So they're gonna ask the people who live there year round, but they're also going to begin to inquire of the people who have descended from the countryside. So let's go back to chapter 11 and see this taking place. Verse 57. The chief priests and the Pharisees had given orders that anyone who found out where Jesus was should report it so they might arrest him. Do you see what's happening here? You've got a lot of people wondering, is Jesus gonna show for Passover? You've got the Pharisees saying, hey, if Jesus shows for Passover, you have to let us know. And they had some judicial authority. So if people didn't obey the Pharisees, there could be some consequences. And so then it begs the question, what is Jesus gonna do? And again, because we kind of skip ahead to Palm Sunday, and obviously we know that Palm Sunday sets into motion the events of the Passion Week that gets us to the crucifixion, that gets us to the resurrection. Sometimes we can miss this one little part of Scripture, and I love it, and we're gonna spend some time unpacking it today because I just think it gives us some great insight. So again, convergence of this tipping point, raising Lazarus from the dead, it happens to be at Passover. People are coming into the city. Pharisees are looking for Jesus. And here's the third observation to make with what Jesus does. Jesus makes a six-day pit stop before entering Jerusalem. I think this is fantastic. And I love this part of the story. And it, easy, it's easy to skip by it because we don't do that. I mean, when's the last time you were trying to get somewhere and you decided to make a six-day pit stop? Some of y'all don't even make a bathroom pit stop on the way to get somewhere, right? It's like, no, I gotta be that. I gotta be there. Has anybody else do this? I hope I'm not the only one. When you enter like a destination with your GPS, which by the way, I don't know if you figured this out, you can't trust Apple Maps, okay? Go with Google Maps. They did not pay me to say that, but that's neither here nor there. But when you enter the destination, either locally or going on a trip, and it tells you what time you're gonna be there, does anybody else go, oh, we'll see about that, right? <laughs> no, 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 it's on, right? Like, it's kind of like a challenge. Like, they're looking at you being like, this is when you're gonna get there. I'm like, I'm gonna get there earlier, okay? And here we go, breaking laws left and right. Did I just say it? I think I did, okay? So we're gonna get there. 
We don't know how to slow down and take a stop when we're actually on our way to somewhere else, much less for six days. And yet, this is what Jesus does. Remarkable. So we're about to get into John chapter 12. We're going to pick it up in verse 9. But I want to summarize the first eight verses for you that tells us the power of this, okay? So again, Pharisees are looking for Jesus. And John chapter 12 says that six days before the Passover, Jesus and his disciples left, and they went to Bethany. Now, a little bit of context. We've got Pike Road, and we've got Montgomery, and they're right beside each other. Not quite the same, but pretty similar with Bethany and Jerusalem. Bethany is kind of a small village right outside Jerusalem. Now, clearly, it takes a little longer to travel back then because y'all know they don't have cars or anything like that. But Bethany is right outside Jerusalem. And instead of going straight to Jerusalem, Jesus and his disciples stop in Bethany for six days. Now, why would they stop in Bethany for six days? Well, that's where Mary and Martha and Lazarus live. So they go back to their home and they stay there for six days. And if you read the beginning of John chapter 12, it says something that's remarkable. And I wanna draw some attention to it because it's easy to pass right through it. It says that when they got there, Mary and Martha and Lazarus had a dinner to honor Jesus, to honor him. I love that. I love that our Savior, for at least an evening, had some people around him acknowledge him for who he was. They honored him. And we don't get any descriptive language of, of what that would have looked like other than one incident that gives us some insight into maybe the honor that they felt to have Jesus in their home for six days. It says that while they were reclining while they ate, that Mary decided to take this jar of perfume and she broke it and she anointed Jesus' feet with it and she began to wash his feet with her hair. And of all people who speaks up to say something to her, it's Judas. Yes, that Judas. Says to her, what are you doing? We could have sold that perfume for money. And Jesus literally goes, let that. He didn't do that exactly. But it says that Jesus told him, no, that she's doing the right thing. And, and John tells us, as he's telling us this story, that by that time they had all kind of figured out Jesus, uh, Judas was actually stealing from the treasury. So they kind of already were beginning to wonder about this Judas guy. And these things are happening for six days. Now think about everything that I've, described so far with this tipping point and the convergence of the timing of the year, don't you think that people would have begun to hear? It kind of leaked out a little bit. Hey, he's right outside the city. Day one, is he coming? He's still outside the city. Day two, he's still outside the city. Day three, it's just building and it's just building and it's just building. So look how John describes this, okay? Picking it up in verse nine. Meanwhile, a large crowd of Jews found out that Jesus was there and they came, not only because of him, but also to see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. So now it's like a two for one. We can see Jesus and we can meet Lazarus, who was dead. But look at what happens on the other side of the coin. The chief priest made plans to kill Lazarus as well. So now their fury has gone to a different level. They're not just after Jesus, they're after Lazarus. And John tells us why. Verse 11, for on account of Lazarus, Many of the Jews were going to Jesus and believing in him. Do you, do you see what's kind of happening here? And what's happening here when you think of this tipping point of healing Lazarus, raising Lazarus from the dead, 
convergence of the time of year, let, let me tell you what's actually happening. It's actually caused mass hysteria. <laughs> mass hysteria like the first century had not known. Is there an event that happened in your life that you can think, yeah, that was mass hysteria? Like, I wasn't alive in the 60s, but I've seen some of the old footage. The first time the Beatles played on the Ed Sullivan show, it looks like mass hysteria. Maybe there's been some athletes a few times over the years or, or some teams a few teams, uh, times over the years that had this large crowd, this large following, and people were really fired up about it. It was all anybody's talking about. Like, that's what's happening, okay? That's what's happening. And I love reading John's account because I think he's pretty meticulous to draw some attention to some things, and he's about to do that for us. And so we, we've seen all of these things coming together, and then look what John does. I, I love this. As he's writing his gospel, verse 12, the next day. That's so powerful. Because see, in Hebrew thought, communicating things in the order of sequence and timing is not a priority. It's communicating things in the order of purpose and prominence. The timing of those things and the sequence of those things actually takes a back seat. Now, we don't think that way in our Western American way of thinking, but that is how the ancient world would see things. And yet, John's going to go out of his way to tell us, hey, listen, no ambiguity here. Sometimes timing in Scripture can be a little ambiguous. No ambiguity here. It was the next day. After being here for six days in this crowd building, it was that day, what does he tell us? That the great crowd that had come for the festival heard. I love this. Get What did they hear? Jesus is on his way. They've been wondering now for six days, is he actually going to stare down the Pharisees and come into this city? And in my mind, I can't prove this to you, but I've seen it in enough movies, it works for me. There was a little kid that ran ahead. He had kind of seen them packing up at Mary and Martha and Lazarus' house. And so he ran ahead and he got him into the city. He's like, hey, they're on their way because it says they heard. So somebody had to tell them. They heard that Jesus was on his way to Jerusalem. And so what did they do? They took palm branches and they went out to meet him and they began to shout. Can you imagine being there that day? Every now and then you come across something that you're like, I think that does a good job of capturing what it would have been like to be there. There was this series of shows called The Bible Series. It came out, I think, about a decade ago on the History Channel. You can purchase it on the streaming service. We have it um, at home, and uh, we'll watch it every now and then with the boys to kind of just let the Bible come to life a little bit. And I would encourage you, if you have kids, if they're younger kids, you might want to watch some of the episodes first because there is some violent things because they're true to show the violence of the Bible. I know sometimes that makes us a little squeamish, but it can be a violent book with some violent things. And so you might want to watch a little bit ahead of time, just a little bit of heads up. But we enjoy watching these and, and, and talking about you know, the Bible and trying to make it come to life. And so as I was thinking about that show and obviously preparing and praying through the message this week, I thought, I, I think they did a pretty good job of capturing Palm Sunday, what it would have been like to be there that day. So uh, maybe we can try to connect with that this moment, this morning and take a look at this clip.
you can almost see the relief on the disciples' face. Like, man, we didn't know what was going to happen when we got here. And all these people are celebrating. And they're kind of caught up in the hysteria of it. But I love how they filmed that scene because you could kind of see off in the background, there's some people that aren't happy about what's going down. And I thought the Bible series did a really good job of capturing what probably would have been the reaction of the Pharisees and the Sadducees that day as well. So take a look at this. Where is he now? He's just entered the city on a donkey. See, your king comes to you, righteous and victorious, humble and riding on a donkey. Where's he headed? Towards the temple. He must not interfere with Passover. And so they did a good job capturing that as well. And every year when I study Palm Sunday and I think about just the hysteria that would have been there that day, knowing, yes, there's some enemies, there's some Pharisees, I can't help, and I hope I'm not alone in doing this, but ask this simple question. What happened? I mean, how did we go from all of these people celebrating Jesus to many of them, not all of them, but many of them just a few short days later calling for his crucifixion. And it's one of the more puzzling accounts in the Bible unless we kind of dig a little deeper. And I think if we dig a little deeper into the next two passages that follow, we can get some insight into what happened. But can, but can I just for a minute as your pastor, sometimes you can ask God what happened and you don't get insight. It doesn't make any sense. You don't get some clarity. And it's one of those opportunities in life for us to truly walk by faith. And some of you may be going through a season like that right now, and I wanna encourage you. But in this particular account, I do think we can get a little bit of insight into what happened. So I wanna take a look at the next two passages and then we're gonna spend the rest of our time again, I'm gonna give you those three applications, unpacking what actually happened that day. So here's the first passage. We've already talked about them taking up the palm branches. And so verse, verse 13 says, they took the branches of the palm trees and they went out to meet him and they began to shout, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the king of Israel. We'll come back to that passage in just a second, but let's talk about the second one, verse 14. Jesus, finding a young donkey, sat on it as it is written, fear not, daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming, seated on a donkey's colt. Now we're gonna leave this passage up here for a second and unpack it. In the scene we just watched, you may have heard one of the Pharisees saying, your king comes riding on a donkey, and he was saying it, carrying it with it, the idea that he believed Jesus was making a mockery of that Old Testament passage, and Jesus was not doing that at all. See, when, when Jesus came in to Jerusalem on a donkey that day, he was fulfilling that Old Testament passage. In fact, it says that Jesus found a young donkey. He went out of his way to find one and to get on it to not only fulfill the passage, and sometimes we can't necessarily connect these dots culturally, but in the Old Testament, there's a lot of evidence that donkeys were associated with royalty. So don't miss the imagery of Mary going to Bethlehem on a donkey, but that's Christmas. Let's get back to Easter. So when Jesus is riding into Jerusalem on a donkey that day, please hear, hear me. He's telling everybody, I am the king. No ambiguity. He's perfectly comfortable with who he is. 
with what he's been called to do. If you look in the three years of public ministry, there's oftentimes ambiguity with, with Jesus and the way they'd ask him one question, but he's actually trying to teach them something else. On this day, Jesus is clearly presenting himself as the king. And when Jesus clearly presents himself as the king, there are appropriate responses and there are inappropriate responses. And what we see from the story is that some of the people there didn't get it right that day. And church, if we can all be honest, when Jesus presents himself as the king in our lives, sometimes we don't get it right either. So I want you to grab your notes. We're gonna talk about three things that we can do, three responses when Jesus presents himself as the king. Two of them are not good choices. One of them is the appropriate response. Here's the first thing I want you to jot down. When Jesus clearly says he's the king, we can all respond with an as long as you answer. And I put an as long as you in quotation marks. So Jesus is the king. As long as fill in the blank. As long as he does this. As long as he does that. This is what's happening that day. So let's go back to the passage that we just looked at a moment ago, and it gives us insight into this. So they took palm branches, they palm trees, they walk out, and here's what they begin to shout. Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And I chose the New American Standard because it gets it right with this. As you can see here, this blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord is in all capital letters. And the reason why is because that's a verse. That's Psalm 118, 26. And so if you see that in the New Testament, all caps, it's a verse from the Old Testament. And so they're literally declaring Psalm 118, 26. But if you were to open your Bible and go to Psalm 118, 26, first of all, the word Hosanna isn't there. We're not gonna really focus a lot on that because there's enough biblical evidence that the word Hosanna was used to bring praise to God. That's why a lot of our praise songs have Hosanna in it. So let's just set that aside for a second. But what you see in John's gospel recorded here accurately is after the comma, it says, even the king of Israel. And those words are not in all caps because that's not found in Psalm 118, 26. See, what was happening that day is that they were taking a verse from the Old Testament. They were declaring it with an as long as clarification. So yes, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord even the king of Israel. Jesus was presenting himself as the king of kings and they were seeing a political king. They were good with worshiping Jesus as long as he freed them from the Roman occupation. And when it became abundantly clear that that's not the type of king that Jesus was showing up to be, many of them, not all, but many of them turned on him. And church, if we're honest, we can do the same. That when Jesus clearly presents himself as a king to us, we're good with that as long as. So let's put that back up here for a second and be challenged by that. As long as what? As long as he answers our prayers the way we want him to. As long as he provides for us the way we think we need to be provided. As long as he advances our career on the timeline that we want it to be advanced. Students, as long as he helps you get into the college you want to go to as long as he meets our needs, as long as he does this, as long as he does that. Here's one that's really challenging, parents, as long as he protects your kids. See, none of these things are bad, but the moment they become what we decide will base whether or not we see Jesus as a king, we are no longer seeing Jesus as a king. But see, Jesus is either a king or he's not. 
And, and when we respond to Jesus as king, we don't have the option of bringing an as long as you clarifier to the table. They did it that day in church. We can do it as well. Here's the second thing that I think we need to take note of from this story. When Je Jesus clearly says he's the king, we can all try to make Jesus into who we want him to be instead of letting him speak for himself in scripture. That's what they were doing that day. They're trying to make Jesus into who they want him to be. Now we have the New Testament. We have the benefit of letting Jesus speak for himself in God's word. But if I might just for a minute, one of the things that, that I wanna challenge you with, I'm not trying to come down on anybody, I just, but, I want, but I do wanna challenge you. Far too many Christians have never let Jesus speak for himself in God's word. Their view of Jesus is shaped by what they've heard about Jesus from other Christians or what they've heard about Jesus from other preachers, but they've never actually let Jesus speak for himself in his word. Can I challenge you to get into the four gospels, get all up in the four gospels and see who Jesus is. And then for the rest of the New Testament, it's basically a commentary on the implications of what Jesus has accomplished. And we've got to let Jesus speak for himself in his word because, see, if we don't, here's what we can all do. We can all turn Jesus into who we want him to be. What do I mean by that? Sometimes Christians want to make Jesus a little bit more palatable, a little less offensive, a little more politically correct, a little bit more all. And listen, when you read in the New Testament, sometimes Jesus was offensive. You've got to let him speak for himself, even if it makes you a little uncomfortable. Now, that doesn't give you license to go be a jerk Remember the old WWJD bracelets? Don't go buy one of those and go, he'd be a jerk. Like, don't, don't, don't do that, okay? It's not what Jesus would do. But sometimes we make him into what we want him to be. Sometimes, if we're not careful, we can make Jesus into cause-oriented Jesus. So we have a cause that we're passionate about. It may not even be a bad cause. But now we kind of want to bring Jesus along and make our cause his cause and let him kind of lead the way because that makes it seem a lot more spiritual. And yet, when you read Jesus in the New Testament, it doesn't seem like that's what he was about. He says, I came to do the will of the Father, which is to seek and save those who are lost. There's a number of different ways we can do this. And my challenge is fight against that by seeing Jesus for who he is in his word and letting him speak for himself. One of the reasons I'm teaching from John's gospel today is maybe in this season, I wanna challenge you to spend some time in John's gospel. I love John's gospel because you get the I am statements where Jesus is speaking for himself. I am the bread of life. I am the way, the truth, and the life. I am the door. I am the gate. I am the bread of life. And John's gospel gives Jesus this great opportunity to speak for himself. So spend some time in John's gospel during this Easter season. And then finally, number three, this is the correct response. When Jesus clearly says he is the king, we can all respond in worship, acknowledging the power of his name. That's what you do with the king. And church, I think we understand the worship part. We gather and we worship. We talk a lot here at Vaughn Forest about worship as a lifestyle. But can I draw your attention to acknowledging the power of his name? We sang about it earlier in our service today. There is no name like the name of Jesus. Do not ever lose sight of the power of his name. That when you speak the name of Jesus, the enemy must flee. When you speak the name of Jesus, darkness must hide. When you speak the name of Jesus, freedom can occur. When you speak the name of Jesus, healing can happen. When you speak the name of Jesus, provision can be made. Speak the name of Jesus over your marriage. You speak the name of Jesus, grandparents, over your grandchildren. 
Parents, you speak the name of Jesus over your children. You speak the name of Jesus over your home. You speak the name of Jesus over your finances. You speak the name of Jesus over your place of employment. Students, you walk the halls and you speak the name of Jesus in your hallways because there is power in the name of Jesus. In church, sometimes we just need to be reminded of that. Would you bow your head with me this morning? So Jesus, as we come to you collectively as your people, we want to acknowledge there's power in your name. We want to worship you as king. We, we don't want to worship you with clarifiers. We don't worship you with man-made expectations. We want to worship you, not just as our Savior, but also as our Lord. So, Lord, we repent of the many times that we've done that, where we've attached expectations to our worship, where we've tried to make you into something that we would prefer you to be instead of just letting you speak for yourself. And, Lord, we repent for failing to acknowledge so many times the power of your name when we're up against it, when we're facing oppression, when we're facing hardship, that, Lord, there's power in speaking your name by faith. So, Lord, as your people, may we do that, and may we be led by your Spirit as we do that. So, Lord, thank you. Thank you for our time today. Thank you for your word. Thank you for who you are. And we pray all these things in your name, the only name that saves. Amen.